answer session for the Gillette Health Podcast. Yes, our very first AMA podcast, and we're really excited about this one. So thank you to everyone that sent in DMs, left comments with your questions and ideas for future topics. And just as a reminder, the best way to get your questions answered or suggest things is to leave those in the comments section Absolutely. on Instagram, in the YouTube comments, anything like that is fine. So uh, I thought this would be a good question to start us off with. Is Dr. Gillette a human computer? The answer to that is no, but at some point everybody is essentially a human computer. So maybe yes. Yeah, so it's a Clear that up for the listeners. Uh, no, Dr. Gillette does not have his Neuralink yet. Correct. Uh, next question here. Uh, someone is asking about SSRI side effects in general. I, I presume this person had taken an SSRI. They talk about feeling robotic, numb, and decreased libido. Um, but I suppose to format this into a question, um, you know, what would cause this and what would you do about it? SSRI side effects are pretty common, both at the initiation of taking the medication and also when you, when you stop it, which is SSRI withdrawal syndrome, which we've spoken about before. Commonly, especially in men, side effects of SSRI include decreased libido or even ED, and there are certain SSRIs that are associated with the higher incidence of these symptoms, for example, duloxetine, compared to something else, for example, fluvoxamine. So obviously talk with your healthcare provider about them and be cognizant that some of these might come about and select a medication where the risks are outweighed by the benefits. All right, that's a great answer. And here's a question. Someone says, what is the best way to find the source or the reliability of my Tomcat LE product? In general, and this goes for any supplement, not just Tomcat LE, look for a company from the USA, UK, Canada, um, and look for one that does third-party testing, ideally third-party testing from a reliable third-party tester. And also just looking for reputable brands as well. Um, we're not, uh, you know, just like we're not really pro one brand name medication. We're also not really pro one specific brand name supplement company, but there are certainly some that are more reputable than others. Yeah, certainly established companies. And then you know, the best way is to measure your outcomes. So how is it making you feel and how is it affecting your blood work? Uh, mainly testosterone, I think, is what people are going to be targeting with the Tonkat LE. For sure. Uh, and then someone asked a question from our video on Tonkat LE. They said, what dosages of fenugreek and NAC should I take alongside Fidogia agrestis? Around 500 milligrams of fenugreek is reasonable. Um, I think they asked about NAC as well. Mm -hmm. um, if your ALKFOS and GGT are high, despite what dose of NAC you're taking, then one, you might just not tolerate it, and one, you might need more. A pretty common dose is 600 milligrams or 600 twice a day. Another question here is, how do I lower my estrogen, um, and should I lower my estrogen? And this is saying specifically in men. Um, how to lower it uh, kind of depends on if you're on TRT or if you're on estrogen, I suppose, and um, why you would want to lower it. So is it gynecomastia? Is it fluid retention? Um, is it, uh, you know, how you're feeling? And then if you look at the actual level of estrogen, how does that objective marker correlate with how you're feeling subjectively? So there are several things that you can do. For example, you can alter your uh, function of glucuronidation, which is one of the major um, recyclers or metabolizers of estrogen. And you can do that with things like calcium deglucurate. You can also alter the amount of binding of the tissue, things like chrysin or even things like DIM can potentially do that. Uh, and there's upsides and downsides to all of these. But the main thing is um, being in a slight caloric deficit, losing body fat little by little so that you have less peripheral aromatization, especially for males, but for females as well. And then if you're on TRT or estrogen, the dosing protocol matters quite a bit. That's a great answer. 
What about reducing estrogen to improve endometriosis or heavy bleeding in menstrual cycles? That is certainly one of the vectors that can help both for endometriosis, um, which is uh, basically painful endometrial tissue in other areas of the body besides the endometrium and the uterus where it is supposed to be. And then as far as like painful or excessive bleeding, menorrhagia would be excessive bleeding, dysmenorrhea for um, pain. And then um, a lot of these go together along with a constellation of symptoms associated with estrogen dominance. And a lot of those interventions that we just talked about certainly may help with estrogen dominance. The balance between estrogen and progesterone is also very important, particularly for the maintenance of endometrium. And the balance between estrogens and androgens is also important. A lot of factors to think about there. Uh, someone says, what is a good supplement or protocol for beard growth? Well, this one, I suppose, is a bit more simple. There's not a ton of things that you can do, but um, even if it's just anecdotal evidence at this point, yes on every minoxidil bottle it will say do not apply to the face but minoxidil both oral and topical certainly helps with beard growth microneedling also does and upregulating your, your sulfotransferase activity with tretinoin can help non-responders to minoxidil it's also a gene that you can test optimizing your hormone profile can also help with beard growth so that doesn't necessarily mean take topical dht the risks of that probably outweigh the benefits. Some people also take uh, topical castor oil, which is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. Mm -hmm. And it depends on the androgen receptor content in the skin. You know, yeah. there, there's going to be people at the end of the day who um, never are able to grow a respectable beard. And then there's people who wish they didn't have to shave every day and they didn't ever want to grow a respectable beard, but that's just the hand that they were dealt. So this is a really good question. Uh, another one is, how do I find a physician that will discuss natural supplements? All of my doctors so far have no knowledge on supplements. Same way you would find a coach for a specialized sport. So let's say you're a uh, curler or a, um, you know, what else is a specialized sport? Um, archery. So you're probably not gonna find a coach like that at your average gym or at your average sports complex, um, looking online is actually a pretty reasonable way to go about it. And then if you have any, any friends or family that are in a similar situation, um, word of mouth referrals seem to be particularly good for healthcare providers. Yeah, I think you're right on target there. A lot of times there are bios on people's uh, pages on different health organizations. You can look at what doctors or providers um, approaches, whether that's preventative or if they specifically mention supplements, that would be a pretty good indicator. And then a lot of times, you know, people talk about a provider that they've gone and seen that helped them with their supplements and then just spreads that way, like you said, yeah. through word of mouth. Another question we have here is, I read GABA agonists can decrease testosterone. If I take a low dose of a GABA agonist, how do I know if this is affecting my testosterone levels? By checking your testosterone. And if it's a low dose every once in a while of, let's say, gamma immunobutyric acid or GABA itself, it's probably not going to be as inhibitory as something like a, a really long-acting benzodiazepine. Right. The, the dose is going to make the poison. Uh, is taking L-carnitine orally feasible for most people? And I suspect they're referring to TMAO TMA production in this context. It is feasible for most people. I'm a fan of checking TMAO if you're on any significant amount of oral L-carnitine, even if you're on allicin, which inhibits the conversion. Um, a lot of it has to do with your gut microbiome. So if you do convert a lot to TMAO, that could be a good reason to get something like a microbiome test. Yeah, and another, we may have talked about this on a previous podcast, but if you take an individual on a vegetarian diet, mm -hmm. a lot of times, even with a high choline or carnitine load, they're not going to produce TMAO because of that difference in gut microbiome. But at the end of the day, it goes back to getting that level checked and seeing where it's at. What should people know about MK677? 
MK677 is also known as ibutamorin. It is not an FDA-approved medication. Very seldomly it is compounded as it is what it was studied for. It is occasionally used for adult growth hormone deficiency and pediatric growth hormone deficiency. Now that being said, it is a ghrelin agonist. So it acts similarly to ghrelin, which is the hormone that makes you hungry, but it is also the endogenous ligand. So it is also what is in your body that binds the receptor in your pituitary to release growth hormone. What should people know about BPC-157? BPC-157 is uh, kind of like a bioidentical hormone. It uh, is similar to gastric protective compound 157 that is made in many areas of your body, but a lot in the stomach and in the gut. And this compound helps with vasculogenesis. So that means growing new blood vessels, very similar to VEGF. So there's um, two fountain of youth hormones cosmetically, and those are VEGF and growth hormone. So those are both very pro-growth. There's a medicine that is called Evastin, which is on the um, World Health Organization's list of essential medications because it treats so many different types of cancers, and it is a VEGF inhibitor. So that is essentially the opposite of BPC-157. So again, this is a case of the dose makes the poison or the therapy. Right. You certainly don't want to have chronically elevated growth factors because that's very likely to be pro-aging when a lot of people think that these compounds are going to be anti-aging. Cosmetic anti-aging is often speeding up, so pro-cellular aging. What supplements can someone take for a healthy gut? A lot of fiber would be the main one. (laughs) I mean, you can obviously take anything as a supplement and you can incorporate it into your diet as well. But a good diverse array of vegetables and fiber, both prebiotic and dietary fiber, which is also known as soluble fiber, that's going to be far and away the most helpful. Yeah, it's sort of my toolkit for gut health before I'm going to a, a probiotic is, you know, Make sure dietary fiber intake, soluble fiber intake is adequate or optimal. Fermented foods, even exercise promotes better gut health. And then, you know, you can test for things like SIBO to see if there's issues there, but they don't tend to be the most common things. You know, a lot of times if you're just checking the lifestyle boxes, things tend to fall into place. Since turmeric can decrease DHT, and creatine can increase DHT, do they cancel each other out or balance the side effects of each? Possibly in some individuals that could be the case. Most eugenatal men can tolerate turmeric, even a high dose of bioavailable turmeric, just fine. So I tolerate a turmeric supplement, and um, if you don't tolerate a turmeric supplement and you feel you feel the difference in the DHT, which is often minimal, then you might consider getting your hormones checked to see if your testosterone is optimized, or you might consider getting your DHT checked to see if your level of 5-alpha reductase is higher or lower at baseline. And you also might consider getting your androgen receptor sensitivity checked or optimizing the density of the androgen receptor. But to answer the question specifically, yes, that's a reasonable um, balancing Yeah, and for example, if you're using an even more potent, uh, let's say 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, this might be interesting for people to know. And I think we've both seen patients who have taken finasteride with creatine and without creatine. And I've even seen data sets in the same patient where the finasteride is offsetting any increase from the the creatine. You're not seeing the DHT rise. It's not canceling out the finasteride per se. Yes. What is the relationship between head trauma and hormones? Is this something that happens immediately or is there a delayed onset? Both. It it can happen immediately, especially with significant trauma to the head. For example, if you have a uh, hemorrhagic cella turtica, which is the pouch that has the pituitary glands in it, anterior, posterior, and that is a pretty profound, fast effect, acute effect, and then there's also chronic effects as well. 
does increasing testosterone increase your risk of prostate cancer? It does not increase your risk of getting it, but it, it will grow it when you do get it. So again, about 50% um, of 80-year-old men, if you look at autopsy, they have uh, prostate cancer in their prostate. And at around age 90 to 100, over 90% do. So it's a matter of when, not really if. Yeah, it's one of the first things I recall learning um, in that pathology is that most men die with prostate cancer, but not yes. from prostate cancer. And we see the trend now is towards less aggressive treatment, more monitoring, and there's therapies like dutasteride, which can delay progression and growth of prostate cancers when they are there. Correct. You mentioned in a podcast that trazodone should not be taken every day. Why is this? Specifically for sleep, if you look at the difference between trazodone and a placebo pill, after several weeks, there is no difference in the onset or latency of sleep between the trazodone and placebo groups. So trazodone works best for sleep um, when it is taken intermittently. So you still have, kind of have that initial effect of trazodone. As the dose of trazodone changes, the mechanism of action also changes. It's a very interesting medication where at a, a, a lower dose, it works on the adrenergic system, for example, alpha receptors, which can uh, clonidine and guanfacine or other uh, alpha antagonists. And then if you look at its more high dose mechanism of action, then it becomes more serotonergic. Yeah, it's really interesting when you can dial up the dose of a medication and change the receptors it's acting on. Yeah. It sort of reminds me of uh, vortioxetine, a, a fairly newly developed antidepressant. Yep. That may be an interesting one for people to look into. For sure. Let's see, thoughts on children beginning puberty earlier. Do we know why this is happening? We have several different theorized mechanisms of action. One of the main reasons is childhood obesity, more adipose cells, and um, higher body fats, higher fat in those adipose cells, producing more leptin. Leptin stimulates a receptor in the hypothalamus that releases gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which releases LH and FSH, which releases hormones and begins puberty. So that's one of, the, one of the reasons. There's a lot of other reasons as well. For example, endocrine disruptors. You can chat about bisphenol A. We can chat about epigenetic changes as well. We can chat about less exercise, so um, different levels of SHBG, so different levels of free hormones, and it, they all contribute. It's a good answer, and there's so many factors that go into that. This one I think we can divide into a couple of categories. Um, so let's start with supplements or protocols for bone health and aging. Mm -hmm. Bone health and aging protocols for that would be similar to a hormone optimization protocol. Find what you're missing. Find what it is that, assuming that this individual has um, osteopenia or slightly thinned out bones, find if it's the vitamin D that's suboptimal, the parathyroid hormone perhaps. You know, if some people do have parathyroid hormone deficiencies, perhaps they had a thyroid removed and the parathyroids or some of them are removed along with it. Um, find if it is estrogen, find if it is androgen. There's also an intracrine effect in the bones. That's where it's endocrinology except intracellularly, where you're converting to different things inside the cells or binding to receptors inside the cells and that can vary based on genetics. So finding uh, which axis is most affected and then addressing that factor. Yeah, and I think as you mentioned with osteopenia, just getting that initial screening is very important and maybe even moving up the timeline if you are someone with a lower BMI or you have a family history of osteoporosis, mm -hmm. osteopenia. Getting a DEXA right at the time of menopause or around the same time as, even more ideal, around the same time as your first colon cancer screening. Ideally a colonoscopy and a DEXA scan around the age of 40 or 45, if not earlier, if there's a family history risk. That is a great preventive way to start. I agree. Uh, and then the second part of this would be, uh, not regarding the bones, but regarding connective tissue repair and regeneration as you age. Mm -hmm. By connective tissue, I think of type one collagen, type three collagen, elastin as well. 
collagen in various tissues has varying level of vascularization, even among the same group of collagen. For example, some areas of the meniscus in the knee are better vascularized than others. And your orthopedic physician might say, yes, this area of knee is well vascularized, it's likely to heal, or no, it's not. It's so poorly vascularized, we might as well shave it off. We chatted earlier about VEGF, and that can, of course, help vascularize some collagen. So BPC-157 or PRP, and eventually stem cells will be quite helpful as well. Um, the jury's still out on that. But um, other things have inputs to collagen as well. Estrogen specifically has a strong building effect of type 3 collagen, not only in skin, but in other tissues as well. And then crystals known as calcium hydroxyapatite crystals can help with type 1, type 2 collagen, and also elastin. So thinking about what area you're in, um, those are some things that you could think about for the health of collagen. Vitamin C will help cross-link it, and MSM will as well. Yeah, and even collagen supplements, there's been sort of mixed data, but there's some small studies coming out now where you see some increase in the thickness of tendons and ligaments, and does that correlate with better tendon and ligament strength? Probably, um, but whether that's clinically significant, we don't know just yet, because the trials are very small and short in duration. Part of the reason why collagen or protein supplementation or EAAs might help with collagen thickness and strength is because of its action via growth hormone or IGF-1 as well. Again, not too high, not too low, the Goldilocks zone. I noticed hair shedding on creatine. Does this mean I should stop taking it? It's hard to say. There's a theoretical correlation. Probably not. Um, if I noticed hair shedding on creatine, my questions would be, were they miniaturized hairs or were they um, healthy hairs? Did it just improve the blood flow to the scalp um, and have a effluvium of the unhealthy hair so that they could become reincarnated and enter uh, antigen and catagen phase again? Perhaps those were doomed to go into telogen phase and creatine just kind of pushed a few over off the edge. We see that a lot when people start thyroid hormone replacement as well, but I would use that uh, hair shedding as not an excuse, but a, a valid reason to get a lab workup. Yeah, I think that's a, a great actionable plan for someone. Uh, it says, some preclinical data suggests DHT inhibitors could be beneficial for cardiac or prostate health, but DHT has other health benefits how does someone decide what to do here? Instead of looking at the uh, benefits and detriments of DHT, I would look at the profiles of androgens in general. For example, an individual that has a borderline low or certainly deficient testosterone and free testosterone, the benefits of a nice normal DHT are going to look much better in that individual. Whereas if um, there's a optimal testosterone level at the same time, DHT is much less likely to be fulfilling any important task. So um, but there's definitely a balance between the two, but um, DHT is neither a magically good nor magically bad hormone. Some of it depends on the sensitivity of the androgen receptor. If there's an individual with a lot of CAG repeats, which is a not very sensitive androgen receptor, then a very strong androgen like DHT might have a particularly therapeutic effect, and that person might be a very bad candidate for um, fight-off reductase inhibition. Great information for people. And how to optimize libido while on finasteride? So it's the same as optimizing your libido any other way. You're optimizing your serotonin to dopamine ratio, your testosterone to estrogen ratio, plenty of binding of the androgen receptor both in the brain for libido and in the genitourinary tissue. Yeah, and I think the dopamine is part of that that has gotten a lot of attention lately. So what are some of the known ways through lifestyle or supplementation that people can optimize their, their dopamine function or dopamine signaling? Better exercise, better sleep. Keeping in mind it's a dopamine wave pool, so you can't just have a dopamine level above the surface. 
Um, you can with a wave, but then it's going to come crashing down. So um, not going on a dopamine binge. That would be read as like pornography, sex addiction, um, just uh, anything that is above and beyond the normal of your situation and um, you and your partner. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, excess masturbation can upset the prolactin to dopamine balance as well. Getting plenty of sunlight and getting um, plenty of rest can help. And then supplements, now we've mentioned the less fun things, you can talk about tyrosine, um, that's a dopamine precursor and also the precursor for thyroid hormone. You can talk about optimizing testosterone, which helps dopamine synthesis. And then monoamine oxidase and TOMT enzymes help along with the dopamine synthesis pathway as well. Dopamine detoxes are not an exact science, but certainly a period of time, whether it's a couple days or even a full week, where you're avoiding social media and you're avoiding um, just like constant music or constant dopamine balances that can help recent the sensitivity. And then I guess the last thing I'll mention, if you have ADHD or if you're on any stimulant medication, that can be increasing dopamine or even norepinephrine and epinephrine, then taking periods of time off of that to help reset your sensitivity, that's gonna help change the level of dopamine that's in your dopamine wave pool per se. That way your wave pool isn't so deep. Uh, desensitized dopamine receptors, think about that. The pool is 100 foot deep and you only have 20 foot of water in it. So you're certainly, even with the same amount of dopamine, you're going to feel that as much more pathologic, whereas if your foot was 25 foot deep and you still have that 20 foot of dopamine. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I love the concept of a dopamine wave pool. I think it helps explain why people can take really high doses of tyrosine, three or even five grams in the morning. And it's just like you put, add a foot of water into a 25 foot dopamine in a 100 foot pool. It only goes up to 26 foot and you're still well away from the surface. Yeah, so you go from 25% full to 26% full, whereas someone with a 25 foot pool, it's a much larger relative increase. Absolutely. So this one says, after I went through menopause, I noticed brain fog. Is this related to just getting older or do hormones affect the brain in this way? Hormones affect the brain in this way. I suppose a lack of hormones in this specific case. Yeah, so um, that's, a, that's one of the, what we call vasomotor symptoms of menopause. Menopause kind of has like two different syndromes. Um, we used to call one like vaginal atrophy and such, and now we call that genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And we also have vasomotor symptoms of menopause. One interesting point about the vasomotor symptoms of menopause is, yes, if there's an individual without a uterus, if you give them just estrogen, those do seem to improve. Um, because you don't need the progesterone to maintain the endometrium without a uterus. However, progesterone can help with the sensitization or desensitization of estrogen receptors. And there's of course progestin, progestogen neurosteroids as well. So all of, those, the, all of those hormones are playing a part in a symptom of brain fog. Yeah, there's a, a balance there. And we do have good data to show that replacing estrogen, estradiol specifically in postmenopausal women, does lead to some improvement in cognitive function, whereas the data there is um, less strong or even neutral for uh, men taking testosterone replacement. Yep. Probably because it's a more gradual decline as opposed to going from a total testosterone of, let's say, six or 700 to essentially zero. I bet if we studied men with total testosterones below 25 on starting, that there would be an increase in cognitive function. Yeah. Correct, because you're also bringing up the estradiol in that case. So that would be an interesting study to run. Uh, someone said, do smoking and ingesting THC have the same effect on prolactin? No, smoking effect is stronger with prolactin and also aromatization. Um, so uh, smoking THC or in general smoking anything is going to be more harmful to the health. And then another question about uh, menopause and hormones. What would be the optimal time of day to take progesterone and estradiol? Assuming this is for hormone replacement therapy, uh, progesterone in general in the evening, especially if it's an oral progesterone, and then estradiol does not matter as much. 
And then this one, does progesterone or estrogen dominance result in a different body shape for women? It can, but not necessarily. There's so many things that, there's so many different vectors that determine a body shape that often there's another um, vector that is influencing it more. In menopause, often one of the large determiners is actually a lack of androgens. Many patients that come in and say they feel like they're turning into a male are actually depleted of androgens rather than have too many. Yeah, and there are some characteristic patterns of weight gain in menopause where you have a lack of estradiol and then some adipose accumulation around the midsection and those things are fairly well understood, but in general, probably your genetics and where you have historically carried weight or where your you know, family has historically carried weight is gonna be a bigger effect size than your hormone balance. Uh, this one says, should all women try to increase their progesterone levels? I hear a lot about estrogen dominance. How do I know if I have this? Unfortunately, it requires lab testing. So diagnostic tests will tell you occasionally a female or a male will feel like they are particularly estrogen dominant and it is not the case. So it's quite hard to tell, just like it's quite hard to tell for many men um, if they have symptoms and if they truly do have low or high testosterone. Right. And for women specifically, I think it's important the way that they go about getting the blood work. So when would the optimal time for someone to have these hormone levels checked be? Checking a progesterone between day 21 and 23, ideally. It's very easy to miss the spike of progesterone during your luteal phase. One other note about progesterone is higher is not necessarily better at all. Um, many women feel sleepy after taking progesterone, um, especially if they take progesterone not before bedtime. That's why people do take it before bedtime. And then some people have um, mental or mood changes while they're on progesterone, especially high dose of progesterone. And then someone asks, can you manage menopausal symptoms naturally if you don't want to? Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply to take hormones. Yeah, it's possible and many people do successfully. It is not near as powerful of an, of an intervention, but it can be a fairly safe one when you do it, um, especially in, in part with a healthcare provider who is knowledgeable about those various supplements. The better functioning your adrenals, and this is a rule of thumb, not the rule across the board, but the better your adrenals function and the more DHEA and peripheral estrogen that you produce, often the easier it is to manage menopause without HRT. Yeah, so I sort of think of the adrenals as the body's backup system. And yeah. you do see a bit of an uptick uh, when you look at the data in that those adrenal steroid production uh, when women are going through that perimenopausal and menopausal phase. Uh, seems like hormones are a big theme of our AMA and the questions we've been receiving. Um, 
This one says, is high SHBG good or bad? In general, it's good as long as your free estrogens and free androgens are in the optimal range. So as long as they're high enough. And this question says, what should I do to resolve a tight pelvic floor? Uh, and this example is, for example, in a man. It depends on what pelvic floor muscles are tight, but um, the pelvic floor is a support muscle just like your abs, just like your serratus on the side, just like your back. The diaphragm is kind of the top of the box, but supporting your core includes supporting your pelvic floor and that can be training it. And there's many more exercises that you can do other than just Kegels. Many uh, exercises that you do in the gym actually help with your pelvic floor as well, many core exercises. Some people will work with a pelvic floor physical therapist in order to specifically train those muscles, just like you would work with a physical therapist to rehab any other muscle in the body. So there's many, many different things that you can do. If there is a specific symptom, for example, incontinence, then thinking about other causes that are potentially, maybe it is partly the pelvic floor, but making sure there's not another hidden cause is important. Yeah, and this person says, how do you measure obesity? Uh, do I need to lose muscle to improve my health if my extra weight is muscle? <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, measuring obesity also goes by body fat percentages, and you can get, there's, there's obviously no perfect way other than autopsy or maybe full body MRI to measure body fat. But if you, for example, if someone just gets a DEXA, which obviously, again, is not perfect, but they do it at the exact same way, and they do it consistently over a span of years, like you could follow that trend, and that is a much better marker than a BMI. However, if you have an estimate of your body fat percentage and an estimate of your lean body mass and your uh, body fat, then you can use that along with your BMI to determine what your healthy, optimal body composition is. That's where a lot of the misdirected, um, you know, there's this movement of like health at any size and that's somewhat true, but only for certain body compositions, especially if you're natural. Now, if you're not natural, then it is possible to just have so much lean body mass and muscle mass and so little body fat, then there's other negative health outcomes. But as a general rule of thumb, if you are natural and you have a low body fat, then you can have as much muscle mass as you like, even if your BMI is 35. Yeah, and I think an important thing there is to fact check your perception of you being all muscle. Um, so, you know, an expert with calipers can tell you probably within 5% what your body fat is, so uh, that you're not 50% body fat claiming to be all muscle, thinking that your health is protected so that you're realistic with where you are, which for most people would be, you know, 15% plus or minus would be a fairly healthy body fat for inflammatory markers, hormone health, mm -hmm. number of different things. What are concerns for peptide therapy use beyond six to eight weeks for an acute injury or surgery, such as people taking these things year-round? Assuming they're talking about GHRPs or growth agonist peptides, um, then the risk would be tumor growth or cancer growth or undiagnosed cancer or a cancer that that individual is not aware of, and then insulin resistance and diabetes. This person says, my prolactin was double the reference range, but I had very high total and free testosterone. I thought prolactin would block the testosterone production. It could be macroprolactin. There's two types, monomeric prolactin and macroprolactin. And you can test both. It's a simple test. And uh, often asymptomatic hyperprolactinemia, where it is not suppressive, is more related to macroprolactin. It's also possible that your pituitary just produces all hormones well. I've seen some cases, really high LH, FSH, really high prolactin. Um, presumably growth hormone was fine because IGF-1 was plenty high. So some pituitaries just work great. Yeah, I think that's great information. And I know we've seen a number of slightly elevated prolactins and there's no symptoms that correlate there. The degree of the elevation is typically gonna 
you know, translate to how concerned are you for a, a clinical finding like a pituitary adenoma? Usually around a level of 40, especially if it's monomeric prolactin and not just macroprolactin. But certainly around a 40, perhaps regardless, you would be at least having a conversation about a potential MRI. What exactly is postfinasteride syndrome and what can help to treat it? Postfinasteride syndrome, some people uh, put it in a constellation of syndromes known as post-androgen deprivation syndrome, but it is symptoms or side effects that are similar to the side effects that many people get on finasteride, except after you stop taking it. So there's several different axes where um, post-finasteride syndrome can take, take hold, if you will, or set in. And it seems to happen most often if individuals are on this medication for more than three months. It can happen even with a few doses, but the uh, taking the medication for several months, you can have a lot of different effects. One of them is pretty simple. It's just that your 5-alpha reductase has not re upregulated. So occasionally, uh, clinicians will use a medication like uh, human chorionic gonadotropin to upregulate that. And sometimes you do just see a really low DHT. Occasionally, it's as simple as just taking a really high dose of creatine to upregulate that 5-alpha reductase activity. Some of it has to do with neurosteroids, so not DHT, but D DHP or THP, um, also known as allopregnanolone, which we've talked about in other podcasts. So there's a couple different constellations. Some people have more of the sexual side effects of PFS, and some people have more than neurologic side effects, and of course some people have both. Yeah, I think that's a, a great overview. Uh, the next question is, what, do, what effects do birth control pills have on a, a woman's hormones? Depends on the birth control, but the combined oral contraceptive pills, which we call COCPs, they have a synthetic estrogen. There's more than just one now, but the most common one is ethanol estradiol, and then a synthetic progestin, which is a type of progestogen that is usually made from either an androgen or from spironolactone. There, I think they have four generations now, but they have multiple different generations, and within each generation of progestins, they have slightly different effects on SHBG and platelets and even venous thromboembolism risk. And um, a, a good rule of thumb is COCPs are basically just synthetic HRT. So if you're, if you're on COCPs or you have been on them, then you've actually been on hormone replacement already. It's just with synthetic hormones. They are neither good nor evil. They are particularly helpful, especially if um, contraception is something that would be a very positive benefit in your life, which often it is. Yeah, family planning is very important for sort of setting up your blueprint for life and how you want to go about things. And I think another a topic that is coming to the light more now, and I know you and I have discussed, is the effects on androgens from yeah. combined oral contraceptives. And I've seen it both ways in blood work where sometimes there is a, a normal testosterone level, normal free testosterone, and sometimes where it is you know, virtually undetectable because that ovarian function is very suppressed and maybe there's not a lot of adrenal reserve producing DHEA. We like to have normal androgenic activity. So COCPs will replace your estrogenic and progestogenic activity, but they will not replace your androgenic activity unless somebody has a birth control pill, which maybe they will at some point, that has a synthetic androgen in it. That would be particularly interesting. Or even a bioidentical androgen in it. Or a bioidentical androgen. That would still be interesting, but not as interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Just a one milligram of oxandrolone to balance things out. Uh, and then the next question is, why does testosterone work for libido in some women, but not others? Testosterone is just one of the many vectors for improving libido in women, and actually the same is true of men as well. Could be their dopamine to serotonin ratio, could be their progesterone, could be their estrogen, could be too high, could be too low, and it could also be um, social factors as well. That seems to be the most powerful one for women. Yeah, and the social factors, one of the things that I talk to people about is stress, because a lot of people, you know, they'll have a complaint of low libido and I'll say well how's your libido when you go on vacation like oh well, it's great 
like what sounds like you have a, a stress problem and yes. not a hormone problem or a libido problem. Yep. So finding ways to manage your stress is also important. Children can also play a part. They're an important vector for libido in women as well. Uh, will Tonkat Ali increase DHT and thereby cause hair loss? Theoretically it could, but it's unlikely to be a clinically significant effect. It'll also possibly slightly increase estrogen as well, which might be beneficial for someone who's borderline hypogonadal. Does an antidepressant lower testosterone and therefore decrease exercise performance? Does a what lower testosterone? An antidepressant. Like I, I'm antidepressant. assuming they're referring to an SSRI here because there's SSRIs. a few studies there. Uh, potentially some SSRIs could slightly affect testosterone. If you were working with a total of 200 at baseline for a male, then that's you know a, a tiny decrease in testosterone, which most of the studies do not show a huge significant decrease, could be significant. Whereas if you're starting from a total of 600 and it changes to 570, then it's very unlikely to be a significant effect. Yeah, and if you are truly clinically depressed, um, you're gonna have higher perceived exertion and that is gonna be something that is not beneficial for exercise performance or even getting out and exercising in general. So I don't think that it would be a significant roadblock for someone to take something that's gonna help them worrying about maybe a, a 10 nanogram per deciliter change in yeah. testosterone levels. Agreed. Uh, what is HCG and who is this used for? HCG is human chorionic gonadotropin. It's also known as Pregnil, P-R-E-G-N-Y-L. And classically it's used as part of ovarian stimulation cycles. Um, occasionally it is also used to um, maintain or stimulate fertility in men as well. It is uh, usually, it can be synthesized, but um, it's, you know, that's what women pee out. So on a pregnancy test, if it's positive, then it's positive for HCG. It also is a mild agonist or it mildly activates the receptor of TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. So really high doses of it can stimulate some thi extra thyroid hormone production as well. That's the usual mechanism during pregnancy, how that extra thyroid hormone is produced. Yeah, and that's why it's important if a woman is being treated for hypothyroidism to address that yep. prior to planning for pregnancy so that you have a plan in place there. The requirement usually goes up at least 30% during pregnancy for thyroid hormone production. Someone says, what does the optimal testosterone to estradiol ratio look like for men? And what does the optimal ratio look like for women? A couple things. Um, first of all, the units are different. So nanograms per deciliter versus picograms per mil. So that's a factor of 10. So if you just uh, took your estradiol levels and divided all those by 10, they'd be equitable units. So for women and men, their testosterone levels are higher uh, milligram per milligram. And um, if you look at there's a couple ways to compare it. Ideally, you compare free estradiol to free testosterone and free DHT, but those lab tests are in general um, like an order of magnitude more expensive to do. So uh, perhaps get them one time, or especially if you're looking for like hair loss or a very specific pathology. But if you look at a free testosterone in nanograms per deciliter and a uh, estradiol, a total estradiol in picograms per milliliter, Usually you're looking for that estradiol to be two to three times the free testosterone, but really it's not two to three times, it's 0.2 or 0.3 in men. And then in women, again, uh, if you're not looking at free estradiol, it depends on the part of the cycle. So usually the best time to look at that is either day 21 or day 14. If you're looking for the testosterone spike, which is pretty minimal, then you're gonna look at around day 14. That spike will also depend on if that female, or one, if they're even producing testosterone from the ovaries. Those are the theca cells, and you produce um, about one third to one half of your testosterone from your theca cells, and then the rest of your testosterone is produced by your adrenals. So um, 
a good ratio for that would be your testosterone as a female is about three to four times higher than your estrogen. Yeah, I think that's a great answer and something not a lot of people are aware of is the, the difference in units there. Um, but it's just a simple math equation, a simple factor of 10 that you can adjust. And, and I don't think it's particularly well known that women actually have, healthy women actually have a higher level of testosterone milligram per milligram, as you mentioned. For example, if your estradiol is 100 picograms per mil, that's 10 nanograms per deciliter. So if your testosterone is 30 and your estradiol is 100, then you actually have three times as much testosterone. Uh, and then someone says, what are the top recommended lab tests? And I suppose this depends on the context. So let's just think in terms of longevity, what the top five or so markers would be that you would look at there. CBC, including a ferritin, if I can do that, a little bit of cheating. CMP, which is a metabolic panel. If your creatinine is high, refluxing to a cystatin C. A lipid panel, including your lipoproteins. So um, within the next five years, we do predict that any lipid panel will reflux to an ApoB or even perhaps an ApoA1 to ApoB ratio. So that, uh, that would be three. Thyroid panel would be next. Uh, hopefully including a TSH, a free T3, and a free T4. And then last would be your hormone panel. And I am obviously cheating a little bit by adding a lot of labs, but that would include your androgens, your estrogens, your progestins, and a cortisol if I can put that in, and a IGF-1. Yeah, I think that's a fairly solid starting panel uh, and something that wouldn't be extraordinarily cost prohibitive because a lot of these tests now wholesale can be quite affordable. Yep, wholesale, the cost for that, um, for example, if like one of our patients got it, I believe is less than $200. And there's more markers and several more markers than that included. Right, next question is, does soy influence estrogen levels or cause feminization in men? Very unlikely to. It is a, it's a relatively weak phytoestrogen. But if a male is estrogen dominant, it might not be a great thing to add, especially in high males. Yeah, the dose would probably dictate the effects there. I, I think it would be very hard to consume enough soy to cause estrogenic effects. It would be very difficult. Someone here says, I heard that combining black pepper and curcumin will decrease testosterone. Will putting black pepper on my meals hurt testosterone levels? It will actually increase testosterone, but it might slightly decrease DHT, which is dihydrotestosterone. So those will both actually increase testosterone, which may or may not be a good thing depending on your profile. But in most eugenatal men, so normal testosterone profiles, they will have no clinically significant effect. Um, that was an interesting question about black pepper as a spice um, versus biopurine, which is a specific black pepper fruit extract. To my knowledge, Black pepper as a spice does not have the same effect as black pepper fruit extract or brand name biopurine that many people put in supplements to increase bioavailability. There's a lot of good ways to increase bioavailability. For some individuals, biopurine might be a good one, but it also interacts with other enzymes that metabolize drugs. So if you're on many drugs, then maybe that's not a great chance, a great choice. There's also liposomal delivery, micellar delivery, depending on hydrophobicity or uh, hydrophilicity. And then there's also like uh, different complexes like beta cyclodextrin. So basically there's a lot of different ways to get molecules that you want in your body or in your gut for things like curcuminoids, for example, turmeric or garlic. A lot of the action is in the gut and the actual anti-inflammatory action is because of the effects on the gut microbiome and the environment of the gut. So a lot of times you don't actually need absorption for a therapeutic effect. Yeah, that's a great point. Some things are gonna act directly on the gut and then influence health indirectly through that mechanism. And another important point from that for people to take away is that you do want to inform your healthcare provider of any supplements you might be taking because there can be significant uh, drug supplement interactions, not just drug-drug interactions. Yep. St. John's wort is a particularly common one for that. Notorious. Yeah. Uh, how should I apply sunscreen to prevent photoaging? 
before sun exposure? <laughs> I suppose that's the short answer. Um, I suppose my take on this is that if you read the bottle of uh, any sort of sunscreen, it's going to tell you to apply it like every two hours while you're in the sun. Are people really going to do that is the question. And I, I think probably not. Um, so if you're going to get significant sun exposure a day on the lake, out on the beach, mm -hmm. probably a good idea to reapply very frequently. Day-to-day yep. -day life, I think once daily application prior to going for your drive to work or prior to going to the park, maybe a couple times per day is a reasonable medium to where you're not, um, you know, so overburdened by it that you say, well, forget about it. I'm not even going to fool with it. Yeah. So there's, for there's, compliance. There's nothing magical about applying sunscreen. There are a few barrier sunscreens that you don't want to rub in that you want to actually have as a barrier. But um, in general, following the instructions in the bottle, you're good to go. This one says, what are some common causes of appetite loss uh, and how to improve appetite? Mood symptoms. Um, Mental health is a pretty common cause of appetite loss. A loss of a loved one, that can be part of it as well. Um, there's also, of course, disordered eating. So that can cause appetite to be lost or even appetite to very specific foods. And uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is one good way. There are many different therapists and counselors that work specifically with disordered eating. And then if appetite is lost for a different reason, for example, a cancer diagnosis or whatnot, then um, there are certainly medications and supplements that can help regain appetite. Um, often it is relatively easy to regain appetite unless there's a severe pathology, whether it's like a cancer or disordered eating at play. Uh, liver disease is one that comes to mind. So looking for is there an underlying cause and then addressing that, yep. the targeted approach. and. There's another phenomenon where if you repeatedly eat the same meals and foods over and over again, then you kind of habituate to that and your body will tend to decrease the amount of calories that you take in. So just introducing diversity or better tasting foods perhaps into your diet could yeah. be a way to improve appetite. Um, how much water should a person drink per day? Could you talk about the importance of hydration? Depends on how much you sweat, of course, but good rule of thumb is at least 70 ounces, if not more. Um, taking plenty of electrolytes with that. It doesn't necessarily have to be an oral rehydration supplement that you take. Not everything has to be a supplement, of course. But uh, drinking water early in the day is helpful in that way. When you need to be hydrated, for example, during uh, exercise, then you are hydrated. Yeah, and I think it depends on, like you said, the activity level and the times that you want to be performing well, which for cognitive purposes or exercise purposes, we should all want to be performing well all the time. Mm -hmm. Hydration is particularly important. They've done some studies on uh, the special operations community, and uh, many individuals, especially if you know they're carrying 100 pounds through 100 degree heat, some people need 8 to 12 liters a day, and that's uh, quite a bit. So really depends. Yeah. And do they have specific amounts of electrolyte that they're pairing with that fluid intake to avoid things like nasty things like hyponatremia? Yes. Um, anytime that you need that high amount of liquid intake, you for sure want to pair all of that liquid intake with electrolytes, both in the food and often in those scenarios that you just use oral rehydration solutions. Yeah, something that's you know convenient can be carried and stored with a good shelf life makes a lot of sense rather than looking at the micronutrient and the electrolyte content of your food and trying to you know overcome that fluid deficit with that. Um, someone said, "Is it okay to take sleep supplements such as GABA or glycine every night?" Glycine, yes. GABA, you would likely be okay, especially if you were not taking a lot of GABA, but it just will not work as well because it's GABA. So good rule of thumb, GABA one to three times a week, and glycine daily is okay. Uh, and this isn't a really specific question, but someone just says, what about the frequency of sexual activity that's associated with the reduced chances of prostate cancer? This is a good question. Um, 
the law of diminishing returns applies with that as well. So, you know, twice daily is certainly not going to be that much better than twice weekly. However, twice weekly will be far, far better than twice yearly. So I'd say a good rule of thumb is at least twice a month. Yeah. Likely more. Yeah, and this is an interesting study because I think it's quite old literature and um, a small sample size. So I would be interested to see new literature come out, but then you have, I think the accuracy of that might be just about as accurate as people's self-reported food intakes. Correct. Yep. Self-reported sexual activity is a, a difficult marker to use in a, like a, in a clinical manner. Yep. And then... This one says, when should men consider beginning HRT? And then what about for women? Women should be considering HRT even before they go into menopause. That way when they do, if they're a good candidate, they're ready to start right away. Men, I guess you could say the same thing, when they feel like they're going into andropause or when they feel like they have symptoms of low testosterone, they should hopefully already have baseline labs when they're feeling optimal on board so that they can start that right away as well. Yeah, and I think the idea, because there is good data that men can maintain a, a really good level of testosterone production if they're metabolically healthy into quite old ages, yeah. and it's a gradual decline, so um, perhaps not anticipating that, you know, well, I'm going to go through andropause, I'm going to go on TRT, especially if you're 22 years old, for example. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, certainly it's a conversation that you know, men should think about with their doctors because, or talk about with their doctors, because on average you will have a decrease in testosterone over time, and at what point does that tip the balance towards you know, wanting to have a better quality of life? Um, and also, you know, what are the risks of that? And having a provider that you're comfortable having that conversation with I think is important. Good rule of thumb is get your baseline labs before age Personally, I'd be more aggressive and I'd, I'd say for every 18-year-old, they should get baseline labs. Those that are 18-year-old, you know, uh, you're an adult now, here's your baseline labs and do with it what you will. A very adult present. Uh, yes. Not a lot of fun for an 18-year-old. Open it up and it's just a lab requisition. Yeah. <laughs> Although not, not I, a fun present, but they I, will have fun with it later <laughs> on in their life. They will be glad. Yeah, and I probably wouldn't have minded that because I was always reading about health and blood work and pathology around that age. So yep. for, might be the right present for the right person. Let's see. It says, I don't want to use a pill as a long-term solution for my PCOS. Where do I start? By a pill, I assume they mean any pill and not a birth control pill. If it's a birth control pill, then there's a whole lot of options. But uh, PCOS is kind of like PFS as well. It has a lot of different axes. So if it's insulin resistant, dominant PCOS, so PCOS with very little androgen dominance, has um, a lot of insulin resistance, then using insulin sensitizers, almost treating like uh, pre-diabetes where you're doing, maybe you are doing a bit more intermittent fasting in zone two, and you're timing your carbs around exercise so that you're not as insulin resistant. That can be particularly helpful. Like anything else, the answer at the end of the day is going to be the six lifestyle pillars. But um, depending on like uh, which area of PCOS does it tend to be more anovulation and is fertility the goal? And there's certain things that you can do. Whereas if there's androgen dominance, then there's also certain things that you can do as well. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily, I mean, there's different levels to that. There's some people that want no pills not a prescription, not a supplement. They want to be as natural as possible. And there's tools there. Yeah, food is medicine. And some people who don't want prescriptions but may be open to supplementation, there's certainly tools there. So having a provider, again, that can talk about things on that level, uh, not necessarily push you in one direction, but just presenting the evidence and, and what is a realistic expectation. If you have severe PCOS and you want to quit taking your metformin and your you know, aldactone, that's a fairly common combination that people are on. You know, what can you expect? You know, is it realistic to expect just because you're exercising to have no symptoms? Probably not, yeah. um, but it's a, a start of a journey really as opposed to like what's going to happen a week from now. 
Working with a dietitian can be particularly helpful for individuals who want to decrease pill load because they can recommend things like certain cruciferous vegetables that can help with insulin sensitization and androgen dominance, and they can recommend certain soluble and prebiotic fibers that can help with those issues as well, among many other things, of course. Yeah, dietitians are a, a specialized expert, and you know the amount of nutrition education that you know most I would say providers, whether that's a physician assistant, nurse practitioner, or physician has, um, is not going to be quite on par with what a dietitian has. Yep. They're modern food is medicine experts, an apothecary for your kitchen. <laughs> uh, and this person says, does alcohol affect hormones? Yes. Increases aromatase, um, can increase the conversion of testosterone to estrogen, and it's a GABA agonist, so similar to other GABA agonists, it would have similar effects. Yeah, and I think another part of this is the effects of alcohol on the liver. So not only are you increasing aromatase, but you're probably partially inhibiting the liver's ability to clear estrogen. So if you're someone who is sensitive to estrogenic things, gynecomastia, for example, Alcohol is probably not a great idea, especially in higher quantities. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.